love that phrase that your names are in the palm, engraved on the palms of my hands. And can a nursing mom forget her child? The answer, obviously, of course not. Of course not. That's what um, real power and real authority look like. I do have one uh, one more announcement that I would like to make before um, uh, before we begin to look at God's word and before we pray. Uh, Alice Ellen, every, sun, every Sunday, she goes over across the street to the apartments and brings uh, a handful of kids over to church. And they are going to South Oregon to be with grandkids and, um, and, and their children for the winter. And uh, so she won't be doing that. And she would really like for somebody to volunteer, maybe a couple of people to take turns, to volunteer, to go over, and, and she would introduce you to the parents over there, and, and so that they get to know you, and so they know that the, it's, a, it's a familiar face, and be able to bring some of those kids over here. She, she wants them to continue on in church even while she's not here. So if you are able to do that, or interested in doing that, or sharing it with someone else, uh, Alice Ellen, she must be in class now, I guess. Um, you can come talk to me, or, or let the office know, let Jill know in the office, all right, well, somehow we will make it, make it happen and make it connected. So if you were interested in doing that, maybe not every Sunday, but, but working with someone else, that would be, that would be great. So, and uh, also, I have to take next Sunday off uh, next week, and I feel like I just was off one Sunday. Uh, my aunt passed away, uh, who I dearly love, and uh, so I will be doing her funeral this weekend. And so I will be flying down to Texas and... Uh, seeing family I haven't seen in years, so that's the silver lining of it, I guess. But uh, So I will be there um, for my Aunt Millie's funeral. So Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for those, those words from the prophet who are so, it's so reassuring. We know that you are the king and that you do reign, and it's easy to forget that when we look around, but we know that you are, and we know that you are in charge, and, um, and you are able to twist and make and, and invent and, and adapt things that happen for the good for those who uh, call you Savior. And so, Father, we are submitting ourselves to you this morning as we look into your scriptures and look into your word about uh, the Savior and uh, what he has done for us and, and how he calls us. And so, Father, we praise you. We, we uh, know that you, we cry out to you and that you hear us. And uh, uh, we know that even through the really tough times that we can uh, trust you to be with us and you walk through them. We thank you that you have entered the world uh, this broken world that we have, and uh, that uh, for it's kind of a comfort to know that we have a God who knows what suffering looks like and what suffering feels like, and so we can put our trust in you. We thank you that you are our God, and so, Father, we do, as the psalmist said, enter into your gates with thanksgiving and joy, and so we do that this morning as we look in your word. We ask that you, you take um, your scripture this morning, and that your spirit be the teacher as well this morning. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing on in Mark, and we're still in chapter 1. I promise that we're not going to do verse by verse where we'll spend like the next 10 years in one book. Um, I never liked that when I was sitting in that, sitting where you're sitting, and, uh, and you, you know, sooner or later you just kind of get, mm, 
you know, a little bit uh, want to move on here. But we are taking some chunks at a time and trying to do them in scenes of what the, the idea and what the, uh, the main idea is about. And uh, we want to focus in on the discipleship adventure. This is something that starts off here in Mark chapter 1. And, uh, it, and it revolves around the authority and the power of Jesus as King, as Messiah. And uh, there are a couple of groups in our world, in our culture, in the North American culture this, in this, uh, this time period, who actually call themselves the authority. And we have this idea, when we mention authority and power, we kind of have an a already fixed vision, especially in our, in our Western world, of what authority and power looks like or what it should look like. And so it, it, sometimes it looks like this. This is, uh, this is a group of uh, superheroes called the authority. And they're sort of the, um, uh, the darker edge of uh, DC Comics. You know, it's not really Superman and Wonder Woman. These people are a little bit edgier, but they are the authority. And that's kind of how we envision our superheroes with authority. You know, they're just like, yeah, ready to. And this is another group called the Authority, a group of wrestlers, a team of wrestlers and managers who uh, evidently won the belt, and they are the Authority. And that's what we usually think of when we think of the Authority. But we're going to look at Authority a little bit differently this morning. Uh, let me back up here. Uh, there's, in the time of Jesus, in the time of the New Testament, Rome was the authority. The emperor was the authority. And he looked like, a lot like that guy, you know, with the wrestling belt, and that kind of thing. And uh, you conformed, you obeyed, he owned you, okay? But there was a group that kind of started uh, coming around around the last part of the first century. It was a, kind of a religious sect, and they called these people Christians. And uh, so we have a copy of these letters of a, of a Roman governor named Pliny the, El, Pliny the Younger. There was a Pliny the Elder, and there's a Pliny the Younger. And we have these letters that he wrote to the emperor, Trajan. And there's, in, in letters 90, I think it's 95 and 96, I put it up there, uh, he addresses this idea of these Christians because there are some incidents that are not right and they're not really following with the Roman uh, protocol. Or there's, the society is kind of upended. And he writes this to them about, uh, he's trying to find out more things. He goes, so I thought it more necessary, therefore, to find out what the truth there was in these statements by submitting two slave women who were called deaconesses to torture. But I found nothing but a debased superstition carried to great lengths. So all he found was this, this, this sort of depraved superstition, he calls it, that's excessive, called these Christians. And it's a problem because... These people didn't sacrifice to the emperor. They didn't participate in the festivals. They must be causing problems. And I'm sure Pliny was both, you know, kind of perplexed by it and also felt threatened by it. Uh, who are these people? Uh, because how do, how, do you, um, how do you function and not and just turn over everything? This is this group of equity where these slave women have positions of leadership. And how can that happen in, in Roman culture? In this Roman world, they are just really weird people, really different people. And so he's kind of perplexed, but he kind of feels threatened by it. He's not really sure what it is. And the reason these women, it goes on in the letter, the reason these women were identified is because they would pronounce this slogan, Jesus is Lord. And that's how the churches began. That's how their ceremonies began. That's how the, their, their, their Eucharist, their Lord's Supper began. Jesus is Lord. He is Curios. 
And curios is the word they use to describe the emperor. And what that means is that the emperor owns you. The master owns you. And everyone is owned by someone. And if you're a Roman citizen, you're owned by the emperor. You're owned by Caesar. Well, now these people are coming along and saying, no, we're owned by Jesus. Jesus is our master. Jesus is our Lord. We are owned by him. And for them, for these two slave women, that meant liberation, not oppression. That meant freedom, not slavery. That meant equality, not some caste system. That's what it meant. They are owned by Jesus. And I'm sure Pliny is thinking, how can a dead man be a lord or master? And I'm sure that must have caused them a lot of confusion. And at the same time, he was threatened by it. Because the way normally the world defines authority is that it's somebody that demands loyalty and forces people to be submissive. And they force external conformity on others. Where Jesus comes along and we have this different kind of power and authority. And that's what this passage is centering on this morning. It is centered on his power and authority. But it is a power and authority that, that sort of inflames loyalty. That, um, that, that we submit to him or these people submitted to him because he was leading them. It is a welcoming kind of authority. A welcoming kind of power that is so compelling and so strong that it's irresistible. And that is a huge difference. Instead of outward conformity, Jesus is working on inner transformation. And that's how submission happens. That's how obedience happens. And so last, last week, we kind of started this sort of section, this first chapter of Mark, and it starts off, this is the beginning of the good news of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then Mark kind of goes into, talks about this guy named John, and then finally, when he finally gets around to introducing the main character of the story, that too is a little underwhelming because it's, it's, it's like, okay, this, this anonymous group that's getting baptized, and all of a sudden this guy comes out, and his name is Jesus, and he wants to get baptized by John. And John just said, I'm not worthy to untie sandals. But Jesus says, I want to get baptized. And he's representing Israel. And following that, Following that, the, the baptism is this testing by Satan, which is going to tell us that this is going to be not going to be easy going forward. And then finally, the section ends with his saying, he, his proclamation, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So that's where we are. And now we're seeing this intervention of the king, the good news, beginning in in uh in verse eight verse uh where are we here verse <laughs> six uh here we are six uh 16 sorry about that yeah uh sorry about that i kind of got kind of got mixed up here uh the authority the discipleship adventure begins with recognizing the power and the authority of king jesus so now the kingdom is is breaking in and it the first thing it does is it disrupts business as usual it, it comes in, and, he, and there, there are three callings of disciples in the book of Mark. And two of them are right here, and then one of them is with Levi in chapter 2, who is a tax collector. But all of them are connected to the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is walking through on the coast. Let's just read it real quickly. 
After John was put in prison, he went around proclaiming the good news. This is where we were last week. The time has come, he said, and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And then he got a little bit further and saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing the nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is a surprising way that the kingdom, kingdom kind, of, kind of breaks into the world. He breaks into the world recruiting helpers and accomplices. He's summoned people. He's welcoming people to participate in this. And this is really is a good representation of the fishing trade. Well, sometimes we get the idea that all the disciples and, and the apostles, they were kind of come out of poverty. They didn't come out of poverty. They were part of a trade. They were fishermen. And they obviously had enough money to hire help along the way. And so this is kind of what it's, what, what it's like. It's not a middle class like we would call a middle class today. They weren't peasants. They weren't beggars. But they weren't aristocrats either. They were tradesmen. My point in all this is that this is going to be a disruption in their society, their family, and their business when Jesus is calling them. And they leave it. This is not just a, a nod to a system of beliefs. This is not just an agreement with a doctrinal statement. This is upending their economic life, their financial life, and their family life. And Jesus is telling them he's going to call them and make them fishers of men. Fishers of men. This is not just changing a, a philosophy of life. This is changing your vocation. This is what you are doing. He's not recruiting warriors. He's not recruiting soldiers. He's not recruiting rebels. He's not recruiting terrorists, the Sakari back then, although he did recruit one, Simon the Zealot, and made him into a disciple. So he did recruit one of them, but it was a different kind of authority. And he's not recruiting just evangelists either, because that's in our culture, that's kind of what we think immediately. Fishers of men, oh, they're evangelists. Well, that's part of it, but it goes much broader than that. He is committing, he is, he is recruiting disciples, followers, pupils, students. This is not the normal way that, that a, a person gets trained. Usually it's the student who seeks out the rabbi and says, I want to study under you so that they can be a rabbi themselves. In this case, it's the teacher recruiting the students and saying, come and follow me and enter into this school of discipleship, it's a school that has no graduation. You will always be a student. And so he's calling them in to do this, to be a student, to be fishers of men, meaning that they will be also recruiting for the kingdom of God. They will also be recruiting followers of Christ. And what that means is that they will be his imitators, his students, that they will follow him, that they will have their faith in Jesus, but then they will also adopt the faith of Jesus. In other words, they will be dwelling with him so that they will begin to have the same faith that Jesus has, believe what he believes, does what he, does, what he does, and acts as he acts. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about these followers, these pupils, 
they have this is real authority. And real authority is, is being able to author life into someone else. That's where we get the word authority. We talk about an author of a, of a book. These authors, these authors l- create author life into their characters. And Jesus' authority is authoring life into these disciples. That's what authority really, really does. And these guys are caught up in the net, in Jesus' net. Uh, I just think it's interesting that Mark mentions the nets twice. And I think these disciples get caught up in the net, and then they are to go out and catch people in the net and bring, and bring them in. This is a surprising kind of response. And it's like what it caught my eye the first time I read this was this how immediate this was, how quick this was. It was so compelling, so irresistible, that they immediately decided. And Mark gives us the idea that this was just right now. Now, no doubt he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. No doubt these disciples heard him. This wasn't the first time they introduced themselves. But the idea that Mark gives here is that they came in and it was so compelling, so irresistible. It wasn't forced. It wasn't outer conformity. They immediately dropped everything and followed him. And I just think that is, that is amazing. His personality and authority was so, compre- so compelling that this proclaiming of the kingdom, they followed him immediately. And I want to make one comment before we leave, on, leave this little scene here. It's easy to look at this and go, oh, gee, you know, I feel guilty. I, I haven't left my business or my family or, or whatever. When people become Christians... What often happens is that they take the particular, when they want to take the Bible seriously, they will take a particular thing and make it a general thing. And they will take something very specific and make it universal. That this is for everybody. And we have to do, we have to do that battle. We have to do that, that hard work of looking at something. Is this describing something or is the author prescribing something? Is he just describing what happened? Or is he saying, this is, what's, this is true, this needs to happen for all time and all places and all, and all people? This is one of those particulars, okay? This was Peter's call, not yours, not mine. Jesus made a call on me, and that's different than the call he's making on you. It's different than the call he made on James and John. We know this because Jesus called other people and he actually told them to go home or go to the, go to the temple and show themselves to the priests. This was Peter's call. This was Andrew's call. This was James and John's call. Not yours, not mine. Your call is different. My call is different. So I just want to be sure that we get this, these things, that when we look at it, we don't just suddenly take on this mountain of guilt because I didn't do what Peter did. Well, he didn't call you like Peter did, like he called Peter. He calls you differently. And you are where you're supposed to be. And you matter where you're supposed to be. That's what Jesus called. This is the power and authority that, does, that relies on the ability to author life. It doesn't demand external conformity. It's not relying on external force. It is something that kindles in our hearts, a loyalty that kindles and inflames in our hearts, 
and works for inner transformation. But this movement, now this authority, then goes on into the synagogue. And so the next scene, we have Jesus in Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught with one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us in Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And the people were all amazed. And they asked each other, What is this, this new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the region of Galilee. So the discipleship adventure begins as disrupting business as usual. And the disciple adventure also is a life of engagement, not isolation. isolation. Jesus moves from the wilderness into the town. And I think that's important because there was a group of Essenes who thought maybe they will stay in the wilderness and we'll just wait till Yahweh acts and he will save the righteous, which will be us, and we'll enter into the new land. Well, Jesus taking this out. You leave the wilderness and he goes into Capernaum. And he goes to the synagogue to teach. And they're amazed because his teaching has authority. The scribes, the, the teachers of the law, they're always quoting past tradition, past researchers, past Talmud, past other things. They're always recording, but this man comes and he speaks on his own authority. And he comes and speaks in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, why did Mark mention that it was on the Sabbath? Well, I think the Sabbath is to time what the temple is to place. The temple is the place where heaven and, heaven and earth meet. That's where God manifested His presence. And so you want to have a contact with God in the Holy of Holies. That's where God meets. That's where heaven and earth meets. Well, the temple is like, I mean, the Sabbath is like that, except in time, except in time not place. It is looking forward to when Yahweh comes. And when Yahweh comes and dwells with His people, there will be rest. And so He's given the people this gift that once a week you can enjoy what to look forward to in the future. You will enjoy this rest, this time of peace, one day a week, a taste of what's coming. And there was a rabbi in this time named Shami who said, you know, Isaiah talks about how the species live together in, in, the, in the new age when, when Yahweh comes. Well, he says you can't even kill a fly on the Sabbath because it's a taste of what's coming. And I think that's why Jesus comes, that's why Mark mentions that it's on the Sabbath because Jesus is there saying, yes, it's here. The time has come, the time has been fulfilled, he said, and it's here. And so he begins teaching. And a man comes up, and, you, and you're, he's going to be facing opposition from now on until it reaches its peak at the cross. And a man comes in with an evil spirit and begins to confront him and calls him by name Jesus of Nazareth. And then he even uses the title that we saw in Isaiah just a few minutes ago, Holy One of God. And he uses that name because that's how you gain the upper hand on somebody. If you were in a battle, you gained the upper hand by knowing their name. Remember Jacob held on to God when he was wrestling by the Jagab, and he said, give me your name, give me your name. Jacob was looking for the upper hand. 
And these demons, these, 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 this man is looking for the upper hand. He says, Jesus, what are you doing here? Why are you here? What do we have in common? It's kind of difficult to translate exactly this phrase, but it's like, what, what do we have in common? Why are you interfering with us? And then the demon answers basically their own question. Are you here to destroy us? That's exactly why he's here. He's here to destroy them. He's here to destroy the evil. That's why he is here. That's who opposes him, who opposes the Holy One of God. This is Jesus' assault on the old order. This is Jesus' attack on the way the world is. It began with his testing in the desert, and it will go on till it reaches its peak at the cross as the Holy One of God. We have trouble describing what this evil is. We don't have the vocabulary. We don't have the language to really say what all this is. We use words like demon and Satan, but we're really not sure what that is. It's hard to describe. In, in seminary, you're even required to take a course on angelology and demonology. And the, the, the bottom line is we really don't know. We don't really know what this is. Um, I don't think they knew. They didn't have the vocabulary. And one of the reasons why I don't think they understood or could describe it or why we can't really, really tell you what it is is because it doesn't belong here. Evil does not belong in the new creation. Evil does not belong in the good creation. It's an intruder. It doesn't belong. But we know that there's something spiritual, something invisible that's going on that we can have no other word except evil to describe it. I mean, I, I was reading the story about the, that this kid who, you know, who shot up, went and shot up a school, one of those mass shooters, and he was 15 at the time, and they decided that he was uh, eligible for the maximum penalty. And they talked about his obsession with violence, his obsession with killing. And I can't describe it any other way but evil. There's something invisible, something spiritual going on in this. And we don't have the language to describe it, except we know that it's bad and we know that it's evil. And both of these signs of Jesus calling his disciples and casting out this demon are signs of his authority. It's signs that Jesus is winning. This welcoming and this warning is a sign that he is winning and that the kingdom has come upon you. It is here. And the result of it is that his fame spread throughout the region. Mark is really curious because the book of Mark, because he doesn't ever really say exactly who Jesus is. That's the question that runs through the book. Who do you say that I am? And Mark doesn't ever really say directly, and yet it's in plain sight on every single page of who Jesus is. He shows us who Jesus is on every single page. And we see these mighty works right here, beginning right here. This is not a magic show. He's not doing it to kind of win fame and, and, and followers. He's not, he's not doing this to prove that he's God. What is happening here with Mark is he's taking the parables, 
the mighty works, the welcoming, the calling, the story, and he's weaving them all together in this seamless sort of robe that says, this is the Holy One of God. And the kingdom is breaking into our world right now. All of these things point to him inaugurating the kingdom of God. I believe this is who Jesus believes he is. We never really talk about that much. Who did Jesus think he was? Who did Jesus believe that he was? He was fully man and fully God, but we think that he was born with omnipotence and om omnipresence and, and uh, omniscience. But we know that he gave up the attribute of omnipresence because he's in localized in a body. And we know that he grew in wisdom and stature as he aged. And I think we're seeing here that Jesus is also convinced that he's not just a prophet like Elijah and Elisha, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, just for the generation, that he is actually inaugurating the kingdom of God. I think Jesus is convinced that's who he is. So the discipleship adventure, we'll, be, we'll hit that in a second. When I talk about the discipleship adventure, people will sit back and go, well, is, is it kind of a mystery? Or is it something that I should dread? <laughs> you know, being a disciple? And I want to tell you, no, it is not a mystery. It's not mysterious that we don't understand it. A non-disciple is just simply someone who decides that they've got better things to do. It's just someone that I've got other, other tankings to do, and I can't be, can't be bothered by this. But I'm telling you, it's, it's possible to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ, and live under his care, and live under his governance, desiring and intending to be like him. That's all it is. There's no mystery in that. You hear people all the time saying, oh, I want to be like him. Or I want to be like her. Man, that guy makes a lot of money. He's a successful businessman. I want to be like him. We do that all the time. All Jesus is saying is asking us, welcoming us, inviting us to say, I want to be like him. That's what, a, that's what the discipleship adventure is. That's all it is. It's not a mystery. It's just saying, I want to be like him. It's very common. It's very concrete. I want to learn how to love my enemies. I want to learn how to bless people who curse me. I want to learn how to go the second mile to, with my oppressor. I want to learn to live out faith, hope, and love in my life while I'm working as a teacher or working as a mom or working as an orchardist, whatever. I want to be like that. That's all it is. It's very common, very concrete, very, very normal. And it certainly isn't dreadful. It certainly isn't dreadful. He has our best interest at heart. It's just this daily life of living with grace and peace and joy. That's all it is. That's what it is. It's not perfection. It's not earning. It's just entering into the life of Christ and living out in love, peace, joy, and grace. It's a restful kind of power. 
where Jesus is using his authority to author life in us. That's all it is. Remember the story where Jesus tells Peter that he's given him the keys to heaven? And that's, that's caused all kinds of ideas about a pope and who has, you know, and the idea is that this guy, Peter, can decide who, has, who can get in and who can get out, who cannot get in, and, and he, he determines who's in and who's out. I don't think that's it at all. When I give you the keys to my house, you have access to everything in my house. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. You have the keys to heaven here, now, and you have access to the riches of heaven now and eternity. That's all following Jesus is about. It's becoming like him and finding a way to do that. So the discipleship adventure, is it good news or is it a bunch of religious to-dos? So I'm going to give you five things that I think this is what the discipleship is all about. The discipleship adventure is centered on the power and authority of Jesus Christ. The discipleship adventure is centered on his teaching. That's our, that's our constitution. That's the document. That's what we look at to, to, to govern our lives. It is centered on the teaching of Jesus Christ. It's centered on his power and authority. The discipleship adventure knows that the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the good. And we're, we Christians are just as guilty of this as anybody else, that we think when we see something bad, we want to attack it with opposition. And all that does usually is just cause people to put their heels in the ground. It just creates stuff in perpetual, the same, same battles. The best criticism of the bad is the practice of the good. We need to show what it's like. The discipleship adventure understands true authority is the ability to author life in others. It is evil, and we just saw it in this scene, it is evil that dehumanizes. It is good that humanizes. It is good that creates life, that builds life into other people. It's the demons that dehumanize. Not us, not Christians. We humanize. We don't dehumanize. The discipleship adventure is more about finding the right questions than just having the right answers. Finding the right questions. What is best to, the question, what is best way to demonstrate Christ's love in this situation? How do we move forward in this way? How do I look at my wife in a different way through Christ's eyes? How do I handle conflict? Those are the right questions rather than just having a litany list of, of, of right answers. It's more about knowing the right questions, how to ask them. And discipleship is not thinking about our way into a new way of living. It's living our way into a way, new way of thinking. And what I mean by that, that discipleship begins with living. You want to change how you think? You start living differently. We think, and I was even told this when I was in seminary, that you get the right information and your body will follow. My experience tells me that doesn't work. My experience tells me the other way around, that I live a way and that changes my way of thinking and it changes the way of truth. I live my way in this new way of thinking.
I don't just think my way into it. I fill my head with orthodox theology, but it doesn't mean that I will, I'm going I'm to follow it. We change our mind by changing our lives. Many people find that um, it, being a Christian today's world in America is beginning harder and harder and harder. And because we are, the church is bleeding. They're losing people. People are not attending church near what they used to 20 years ago. Um, sometimes we feel like we're on the margins now, that we're not as respected as we used to be. And there's kind of two ways we can adopt to this or we can accept this. We can say, oh, we're under persecution. We can play the, play, the, the victim. Oh, we're victimized. And I don't doubt that there are hostile acts toward Christians, okay? But we can play the victim. Or the other people are saying, oh, well, no, we, not, we need to adjust our message and make it more palatable. And those people are just taking religion too seriously. Well, what if it's the other way around? What if it's us who are not taking Jesus seriously enough? What if it's us that we're not taking Jesus seriously? I have a friend who's walked away from the faith, walked away from church, and he says, I'm not sure, I, you know, I still kind of believe, but my problem is I don't think my dad believes what he says he believes. And that was it. I don't think my dad believes what he says he believes. And what if we took this seriously? What if we took discipleship seriously? That we want to be like Jesus. Because my experience tells me that the world is hungry for people who live with integrity, who people who live with kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, those fruits of the Spirit... I think the world is hungry for this kind of stuff. But it means we take Jesus seriously. It means we take his teaching seriously. And we say, I want to be like that guy. I want to live like him. I want to be like him who lives with this amazing, compelling authority of authoring life into other people. That's the discipleship adventure. And Mark starts us off right here in chapter 1 with it. I mentioned the very first Sunday we started this that the word following appears in every single chapter in the book of Mark except three. There are only three chapters where it doesn't appear. This is what Mark is calling us to. And we will see it through the rest of his book. Take Jesus seriously. This is his authority. His authority and power is so compelling. And I think there's nothing better to, for us to come forward and take communion this morning as just a way of telling Christ that we are taking this seriously and we want to follow him. And it is a, a symbol, a sign, an activity that we do to take Christ into our bodies through the bread and through the cup. So I'm going to read a passage, and then we will take communion. Uh, we're going to do it by intention this morning, uh, so we're going to ask you to take that step. 
you have to get out of your seat. If you can't, that's fine. We can come, we can come to you and, uh, and, and take the bread and dip it in the cup and take it. And just with a prayer, Lord, I'm taking you seriously this morning. So let me read a passage out of Romans that uh, will introduce us, I think, to communion. He says, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if the Spirit, but by the Spirit, put you to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave, a slave to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, where by him we cry, Abba, Father. And this Holy Spirit testifies with your spirit that we are God's children. So I invite you to take communion with us this morning and declare that I am a child of God. I am a child of God.